0: Just go to Indeed.com slash Blue Wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's indeed.com slash Blue Wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Fellas, listen up. All you ever asked for is an opportunity. You got it today. Where else would you rather be than right here? Right now.
2: The Rock Pile Report. With Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be
3: aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The
1: Bills make me want to. <laughs> it's to Singletary. And they are getting him the Singletary inside the 10. Engineering the controls. Set to throw. Singletary has a first down. Up across the 30. Spins out of it. Down the sideline and inside the 40 of Washington is Devin Singletary. The pitch to Singletary. He's got room down the sideline. Got first down. Stays in bounds and inside the 35 of Washington. Singletary. Touchdown, Buffalo! What a game he is having, and the Bills need him today. Welcome, everybody, to
3: another edition of the Rockpile Report podcast. I am your host, Bills season ticket holder Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Kruger, and that was Chris Myers from Fox Sports talking about our guy Devin Singletary. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, the Buffalo Bills are 6-2. Raise your glass. Hell yeah! Ah. Folks, we have a packed show for you tonight. We want, I mean, we're, we're going to have Spencer German from uh, Cleveland Radio joining us in order to pre- preview our upcoming game against the Browns. We've got AFC talk. We've got a recap of this week's game. I, Chris, I can't wait to get into it, but I want to start this show with a question for you. Because something happened this weekend that I find hysterical. It's college football related. The Florida State Seminoles fire their head coach, Willie Taggart. Now, they're a bad team. So it's not surprising. They've been a dumpster fire. What is surprising is the circumstances financially surrounding the whole situation. Taggart was just recently signed to a multi-year deal. By releasing him while he was still under contract, the school is left on the hook for a massive portion of his contract. Approximately $18 million. Now we're all familiar here, I mean you're listening to a football podcast, so I I assume you understand the machinations of this, with the concept of letting players or coaches play out their deal for fear of quote-unquote dead money associated to the cash that they're going to make Well, they're not not technically in your building anymore, but you're still paying them. And also, you have to pay someone else to do that job in the interim. I mean, that in and of itself is part of what gives players and coaches some degree of job security. You know, it's one of the reasons why multi-year deals is the thing that most players strive for professionally. I mean, uh, Melvin Gordon running back for the Chargers, held out, missed a couple game checks because he thought he could strong-arm the team, and that's how badly he wanted that multi-year deal and just a little bit of guaranteed money. That makes sense, right, Chris? Yeah, it does. In this case, despite having been just hired a year ago, Tagger got axed with a boatload of cash still owed to him. But the school's not going to feel any of the pinch because, quote-unquote, what has been described by ESPN as anonymous boosters of the university have apparently stepped up and raised $20 million for the athletic department in a move that we're somehow supposed to believe isn't associated with the firing of a coach that nobody liked. (laughs) Chris, that's like if I were to break your window and not tell you, but then also just feel like I'm being generous so I buy you something nice. I'll take that. (laughs) I mean, Chris... Think about this for a second. A bunch of rich people got together and essentially made it really easy for a college to get rid of a coach they didn't like. Is that a thing that we could ever institute at the NFL level?
2: Uh, it depends on what city you're talking about. Cleveland? There's no billionaires in Cleveland.
3: <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing in Cleveland. There's nothing in Cleveland but sadness. All right, Sadness, despair, despair. Uh, <laughs> Some of the lowest property tax rates you'll find in the country. (laughs) Foreclosure heaven. What about New York City, though?
2: I could see that happening. I (laughs) I could see people raising money to get Adam Gase fired.
3: If this was a concept, if we as the nameless, faceless fans of the NFL could get together and just pool our money and give it to the team. Just so that they could offset player, player contracts, coaches contracts without, with, <laughs> you know what I mean? Without, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. With abandon. They could just do this because, hey, we crowdsource $3 million. You know, Doug Moreau wants to quit on us. It's cool. We don't care. We'll fire him. We'll fire him week five after a particularly bad loss if we can get that five million in cash. So, Chris, who, when you look around the NFL, what cities, I mean you just mentioned New York, at this point in the season, what other cities do you think would buy out their head coach?
2: Oh my god. I could see the Jets. I think just the Jets. <laughs> I can't I can't picture any other any other uh team fan base wanting to do that to a coach outside of Adam Gase.
3: Really? Not one?
2: No. He's the only one, like, new hire that should be one and done.
3: I mean, I guess to your point, income in that city matters. I mean, Cincinnati, let's face it, I've seen their chili. They they don't have the money to buy out their head coach. No. (laughs) Let's see. Who else? Who else? Who are some of the struggling teams in the NFL?
2: There's Cincinnati. There's the Jets. There's the Dolphins. Arizona's not that great. Atlanta. I can see that in Atlanta now that I think of it. Atlanta. Because that city sucks. Dan Quinn sucks. Atlanta can just fuck right off.
3: (laughs) I mean, ultimately, Chris, I don't understand. I don't know how we get to this point. But I feel like at some point this should become a thing. We should have a little bit of say in who coaches our teams. And if we don't like it, we should be able to buy them out, shouldn't we? Correct. Isn't that the people? Fans could have some authority to at least go in and say, hey, look, Buffalo Bills. I know you don't want to fire coach Nick. I know you don't want to fire Dick Duran because you just gave him an extension. What if we as a city just ponied up ten million cash? Dump his ass. Get him out of here.
2: I would love that. That'd be a great <laughs> idea.
3: <laughs> oh. It just Chris, is there anybody on our current staff that you'd like to buy out?
2: Uh, I don't I don't get into depth in with the coaching like when it comes to like the offense assistance or the defensive assistance, but you know, based on our offense over the last couple games, I wouldn't mind buying out Brian Dable at this point.
3: And you would not be alone. There's a lot of angst out there, folks. I don't understand all of it. I understand some of it. I've been on the fight (laughs) train for a while, but usually that's after a 12-pack. But ultimately, we're a six-win football team, Chris. What are we complaining about?
2: I mean, if you ask a lot of people that follow us and watch your press conferences on YouTube – You know, everybody tells you to relax. It's it's a win. It's you know, there's nothing you can't really take away much from our wins considering I sent you the text this week. Of (laughs) our wins, of our six wins, those teams combined for a nine and forty one
3: record. Hey, at this point in the game, Chris, we're six. We got six wins. Don't you look that gift horse in the mouth. (laughs) And right there, that, that's I—that's the answer I was looking for, and that's exactly where I want to start this week's Week 9 recap. The Buffalo Bills, 24, Washington, 9. Stats of the game. Josh Allen, 14-20 for 70%. 160 yards, one touchdown, and a 110 QBR. Dwayne Haskins, 15-22, good for 68%. 144 yards, no touchdowns, and an 86.2 rating. The Buffalo Bills offense. 17 first half points. The most the Bills have scored since week two versus the New York Giants. Zero third quarter points. Adrian Peterson. 108 yards. 71 on Washington's first scoring drive. Frank Gore. 1.4 yards per carry. Five plays of less than one yard on runs up the middle. Devin Singletary. 20 rushes, which is a career high. 95 yards, 3 catches for 45 yards, 140 total yards from the line of scrimmage, 6.1 yards per touch. The f- Sunday marked the first time in NFL history, 3 quarterbacks with the same last name all won on the same day. And the Bills with 6 wins. This marks the first time since 2000 that the Buffalo Bills have gotten to 6 wins before Week 11. Chris, we won the game. We won the game, and you can't tell me Sunday wasn't pretty great.
2: Uh, I think Sunday was great, knowing that we have two road games upcoming. Because <laughs> three? three three home games in a row on a Sunday is taxing for us season ticket holders. Because you tailgate as hard as we do. We're there at, at we're there at six thirty in the morning. I mean, I think the last three weeks. You know, I've uh, I've spent Saturday evening at my lady's place, and the first weekend I showered there, no water pressure. So I made that
3: episode of Seinfeld.
2: Yeah, it is. (laughs) So the last, like, because going to a tailgate, I want to wake up, have a nice hot shower, knowing I'm going to be in the cold for you know until six o'clock at night when we get home. When I get home after we film our press conferences. It's just nice that we've got two road games upcoming and a break from being at home so I can just sleep in on a Sunday finally. But our tailgate was lit this week.
3: Oh, my God. Guys, it was so much fun. Two weeks in a row, inclement weather, but our tailgates were a blast. And I appreciate everybody who came out to share the morning with us. Break a little bread. I mean, Super Mexican. All the way from L.A., Super Mexican flies out. We're, I mean, Chris, we Imagine going from a place where everything's on fire to a place where it's cold and was snowing a few hours before you got there. Yeah. (laughs) Scott from Ottawa, a longtime listener who came to hang out, brought me, I I think, one of the most unique hot sauces I've ever had in my entire life. It's called Ghost Cat. It's made in Ottawa, and it's, its primary ingredients are wine vinegar and pears mixed with ghost pepper with a hint of rosemary. Now that sounds crazy, it's hot, but it's got one of the most unique flavors any hot sauce I've ever had before. I've been putting it on everything, and yet I can't get Chris to even try it. Come on! Stop being a girl here. Kyle Trimble from bangedupbills.com. Him and his father came out. His father is a lifelong Washington Redskins fan. Further underscoring my confusion as to why Kyle likes the Bills at all. His father's a Redskins fan. He grew up in Erie, PA. None of this is adding up, but we're (laughs) happy to have him. He showed up and made some candied kielbasa dish, which just blew my fucking doors off. That was incredible. Mark with a C, because he's fancy. That dude showed up and drank a champagne bottle full of Miller High Life. I mean, guys, I truly appreciate the fact that you guys all take time, week after week after week, out of your football Sunday, to come spend it with Potter, Chris, and I. Out there, out there, (laughs) in the cold, in the rain. I mean, even questionable football. It really is the people that make tailgating worth doing. And so with that, we appreciate everybody who takes time out of their weekend to come hang out with us. Right, Chris? Yes. Ah. When you look at the game itself, I think one of the biggest storylines, or at least biggest takeaways I have, is the Bills' mistake-free afternoon. Sam Gold of The Athletic last week came on the show to help us preview our matchup, and his key to the Bills' victory was simple. Don't fuck up. In his opinion, that was going to be the Redskins' only hope of overcoming the talent deficit that they're... uh, Chris, when you compare our roster to theirs, we are the more talented roster, especially with Dwayne Haskins making his first career start.
2: Yeah, we're more talented than Washington from top to bottom. And I am including the owner. (laughs) Oh, my
3: God. Chris, the most punchable face. I swear to God. Guys, right now, as you're listening to this, just do yourself a favor. Google a picture. Google a picture of this guy and tell me that he doesn't have the most punchable face. He, He looks like every shitty villain in a cheesy 80s movie where the corporate bad guy is going to keep all these people down. That's who he is. But to Sam Gold's point, the only way they could make up that deficit is if we made mistakes and handed them an advantage. Not only was he almost dead nuts correct about the score, Chris, remember, he pegged it twenty three ten. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was close. That's fucking close. But he was right about this, too. I mean, think about Chris, I don't know that I've seen the Bills play a game this clean all season. Only two accepted penalties against us all day. The lowest total of the season. Right now, we're averaging, coming into that game, 8.4 penalties per game. We had zero turnovers, which is just the third time all season that we've managed to do it. The longest play of the afternoon on defense was a 22-yard screen that came off a broken tackle. A ridiculously broken tackle. Schematically, our defense played the Redskins soundly with no egregious breakdowns in our scheme that would have afforded Washington any kind of quote-unquote big plays. Our quarterback and offensive line, together, I think they had a good day in terms of, I mean, I know Josh Allen, you saw him making some of these scrambly plays, but that's what he does. And together, between his scrambling ability and the offensive line, His only two registered quarterback hits came on the two times he was sacked. And one of those was on just a botched snap that he had no choice but to dive on. Outside of that, no one contacted Allen unless he kind of sought it out. Which I think goes a long way towards underscoring the fact that he's getting more comfortable with how the offensive line does their job. He knows, Chris, on that play where he broke all those tackles and then still got out and almost hit John Brown with that pass. Yeah. That might have been the first time all day where I really saw him under fire. For the most part, he did a good job of getting rid of the ball. The offensive line did a good job of mitigating some of their pressure. And together, they just, I don't know. I never felt worried for Josh Allen. Not the way that I did watching the Eagles game. Absolutely not. Oh,
2: yeah. It was a totally different story.
3: And then ended the day with Josh Allen's second highest yards per attempt of eight yards per pass of the season. But his completion percentage was 70%. And he's now gone a season, a personal best. 89 consecutive passes without an interception.
2: That's good. We don't need, we don't need mistakes from him. Chris, I mean, the Bills
3: played one of the cleanest games I've seen them play. You'd have to go back before last season. You'd have to go back to 2017 when Josh Allen wasn't even on the roster to find me a game that the Bills played as clean as they played on Sunday.
2: It's nice that Allen is uh, keeping the ball uh, from being intercepted. I just wish he knew how to hold on to the goddamn ball.
3: Hey, no fumbles. He kept it off the rug. I mean, What more do you want from the guy? What more do you want at this point? He played. We've all been bitching you and I about all of these shortcomings. Mostly you. Mostly me. Well, I'm just louder than you. That's the thing. I'm louder and my bulldog, Chris, total aside, Halloween, this little girl comes to the front door, we're handing out Halloween candy. I go to give her candy out of the bowl and she asks to pet the dogs because obviously they follow me to the door. So she's petting my two German shepherds and she looks at me as I'm trying to make small talk with a four-year-old, you know, she was less than kindergarten age. I'm trying to make small talk with her about her costume and her father's standing there just kind of smiling, taking the whole thing in. And she looks at me and goes, mister, your teeth look like the doggie's teeth.
2: <laughs> and her
3: father steps in and tries to, oh, no, no, listen, you can't say. This. And no, no, she doubled down. She goes, but daddy, his teeth look like that dog's. <laughs> Damn it, Chris. Oh, God. What what a time to be alive, eh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I also think that it's worth noting that if the, like I said, total aside, I don't know why I just thought of that. These teeth, Chris. These teeth. I've made this... Ma- Listen, so you I'm chew
2: glass with that. Te- those I'm, teeth. I'm
3: 34 years old. I steered right into this. I know what I'm doing. This is a conscious decision at yeah, this point.
2: Because your teeth look like that, your they're parents... they Swiss Army teeth. Yeah, because your teeth look like that, your parents have an above-ground pool.
3: <laughs> we also saw, though, Josh Allen did better. But our front seven did better. And you can argue the merits of who they're playing, and you know, obviously it's not hard to prepare for... A team that only has one win, but after being gashed to pieces by the running backs of the Eagles, there was a lot of fans mashing the panic button in terms of our defense and whether or not we could. Oh nope, that's it. Our Achilles' heel. We're never going to be able to stop the run ever again. And while I don't think that we're completely out of the woods, considering who's in front of us, Chris. I mean, look at our upcoming opponents. You got Ezekiel Elliott still on the docket
1: this Nick week. Chubb. We're playing
3: Nick Chubb. You're playing some of the guys who are in the top ten for running backs in football right now. It's it's gonna be tough sledding here for a few. The Baltimore Ravens. That's all they do is run the football. You have some tough tests coming up in front of you, but I gotta like what I saw from the front seven this weekend. And I know that sounds crazy when you look at if you're just looking at the box score. You're gonna see that, oh, we gave up another hundred yards to a running back. And we gave up a hundred yards at one hundred and one yards. In the first half to Adrian Peterson, most of which came on that one scoring drive. But the reality is in the second half, the defensive line and linebackers figured out how to adjust and oppose, impose their will. Just, Chris, they held him to seven yards. Imagine if I told you that we could take a running back in either the first or second half and hold them to seven yards. That's a win. Okay. I think that speaks to our staff and our players' ability to make a ju- just make adjustments. And in this case, a week after it being their downfall, to them, I don't know, not letting their aggression be weaponized against them for the entirety of a football game, which I think is, you know, people talked about how last week, oh, they just they they ran and they ran and they ran and they did all these things, and our defensive line was non-existent. A lot of it comes down to game planning and scheme and what, what it is you're trying to accomplish as defensive lineman. I mean, here's Jordan Phillips with an explanation about what happened on Sunday.
2: Just getting a little too much penetration. And uh, they were taking advantage of We need to calm down up front and uh, just hold a little bit more, I guess. And it plugged up the gaps pretty good. Uh, they were just kind of inviting me personally, just inviting me upfield. So I had to sit on some things instead of trying to get penetration. So it's just a little, little schematic stuff that I... Uh, we need to work on it, and then we got to figure it out and shut it down. Uh, it was just a couple adjustments. We, you know, like I said, we didn't play bad the first half. Just some minor things that we needed to do and change, and we made those corrections. Jordan Phillips with his post-game interview inside the locker room on buffalobills.com.
3: And he's right. Chris, it worked. After the half, you know, obviously in the first half, their running attack gashed us, and Adrian Peterson was making hay on that one drive. And then even after that, he still got a couple runs. After the half, Peterson had one run for eight yards and then nothing. Here's the rest of his his touches after halftime in terms of yardage from a running perspective. Negative three, zero, four, zero, zero, and negative two. You 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 effectively found out where the hole was and you plugged it. Now, I'm wondering, Chris, if that's not because of what happened against the Eagles. I'm wondering if the Eagles, when they came out in that second, because think about it, against the Eagles, it was the opposite story. In the first half, our defense held their offense down to the ground, pissed in their hair. In the second half, they came out and ran the ball down our throats. So with that in mind, maybe this is something that they're self-scouting and saying, look, we're getting too aggressive and teams are taking advantage of it. Let's just flip the script on that and let's play a different type of football. And when they do, they can turn that off. It's like you just shut off a faucet. To me, that's wildly impressive. As was Jordan Phillips. I mean, if we're going to be honest about it, Chris, Phillips might have had the best day out of any one of our interior defensive tackles. He seems to have embraced the role of leading our defensive tackle group. I mean, did I or did I not, Chris? Back when we drafted Ed Oliver, I said that he might be better served than getting thrown straight into the fire considering his lack of you know, lack of top flight competition in college his just position switch you know just learning the fundamentals of the NFL especially playing defensive tackle as an undersized dt that he might be better served playing behind somebody
2: yeah you said that
3: okay well the bills didn't take my advice Sunday they did, and Jordan Phillips had one of his best games in a Bills uniform that he's had in his entire career. Okay? Now, I, I don't want to say that that's to Ed Oliver's benefit. I mean, I think this is where he should be, because clearly he hasn't been performing where you'd like him to be. Chris, he's not doing the job of a starting defensive tackle, correct? I don't think he's been that effective.
2: Uh Yeah, and even uh, McDermott said uh, this week that uh, Jordan Phillips – You know, outplayed him in practice and deserved the start.
3: Okay. So, for everyone worrying that Oliver isn't starting right now, they need to calm down. This might be the best thing for him. Because with Phillips playing the way he is right now, it's not only going to give Oliver time to work out the kicks, figure out what he was doing wrong and grow from it. And also, it's going to help our defense because if this guy, if it works, why not feed him opportunities? I mean, Chris, look at his stat line. Three tackles, all of them solo, two tackles for a loss, one sack, one additional quarterback hurry, and he is now the... Chris, in his first start since 2017. Sunday was the first time he started a game since 2017, and he came out like gangbusters. And right now, he's leading the NFL for sacks by a defensive tackle.
2: Thank you, Miami. Yeah.
3: Thank you. Right now... Jordan Phillips might be one of the most on, quote-unquote, guys on our defense. And as for the rest of the defensive line, they did a good job. They, They chipped in two additional sacks, two tackles for a loss, and kept Milano, Edmonds, and Hyde clean. So they could just patrol the box. They got 25 total tackles, Chris.
1: That's impressive.
3: Fucking right. Now we have to have the obligatory conversation about things that didn't work and the reason why you want to buy out Brian Dayball. Despite everything that went well, it was another day that ended with questions being lobbed around by a lot of our fan base and a lot of pundits out there over the play calling and the job that Brian Dayball continues to do with this offense. Chris, my father was texting me in the third quarter. He's apparently on the uh, Fire Dayball Express. (laughs) Yes, people are angry. And rightfully so. Chris, how many more third quarters are we gonna go without scoring points?
2: How many games do we have left? Eight? <laughs> so <laughs> uh see so yeah, one yeah, eight games, eight third quarters where we don't get shit.
3: And this is what bothers me. Brian Daybold does not have a problem scripting drives. Look at our very first drive. Fifty-four yards, eight plays, ends with a touchdown. No play ended for zero or negative yards. Five runs and three passes, so everything was balanced. It kept the defense from really keying on what we were trying to do from one play to the next. And we utilized at least, by, by what I could tell, three different personnel groupings. At least three. Now, uh, Whether you were going 11 personnel, whether you were trying to bring in multiple tight ends, you ran all kinds of different looks on the same drive. You marched down the field, you score a touchdown. Everybody's happy.
2: Yeah, not on that second drive when you have first and goal from the two, and you end up kicking a field goal from the twenty-four.
3: Well, and this is where things why get- can't
2: you just run a uh, uh, spider two Y banana, drag that tight end across the formation? Play you have no action. idea what you just said. Hey, I watch enough uh, of a John Gruden when he worked for ESPN. Spider two, <laughs> well, spider two Y banana. You drag that tight end across the line. Play action pass. He's wide open in the corner of the end zone.
4: Spider two
2: wide banana. I'm assuming that's what that play is.
3: He's going to be yelling Omaha here pretty soon. Oh, my God. Oh, okay. This is where things get murky for me. You want to bring up the the, the short yardage failures? Here's where I have a problem. This kind of feeds into it. The Frank Gore usage. If anybody wants to tell me that he's doing a poor job as an offensive coordinator... This might be one of the first things I'd point to. Now, this was, I derived a lot of this from an article that I read and I wholly agree with. You know, I, Chris, do you remember me screaming in the stands about why the fuck we were still just trying to run into the back of our garden center? Yeah. With Frank Gore? Yeah. Okay. So after leaving the stadium, you go home, you, you get on the internet, you start reading things. I have to say this is the first article by Buffalo Rumblings that I've read from start to finish in in, in over a year. It was written by Sean Murphy. And he did a solid job articulating something that we can all see with our eyes when the game's being played. Something is wrong with the rushing attack the last few weeks with Frank Gore, and it's becoming a concern because it's a drag on the entire offense. So far this season, Gore has been in on 225 offensive snaps. On 103 of those, Gore either received the handoff or was thrown to while technically still inside of the tackle box. That makes up roughly 47% of every single time he's on the field. So in his article, which you have to agree with after you watch the tape and look at the stats, Murphy goes on to point out that on Sunday, Gore was the focal point of a play on 12 of his 21 snaps. That's a 57% usage rate. Meaning that if all snaps were equal based on the way the game went, the other skill players on the field would each only be seeing the ball 13% of the time whenever he's on the field. And even worse, Gore's usage and skill set dictates who he plays with. Lee Smith, here's just an example, a small one. Lee Smith only gets snaps when Frank Gore is also on the field. He mirrors him in both Philadelphia and Washington. So, if that's the case, Chris, the who's getting the ball question that every defensive coordinator has to answer, whenever the offense takes the field for a play, it gets easier to answer when Frank Gore's back there, right? Uh, yeah. Because you can look at it and say, oh, well, I see, I see Lee Smith. I see Frank Gore. All right. There's a better than 50% chance he's touching the ball.
2: For me, the worst play was uh, a fourth and one. We had Singletary in. We ran the play, picked up the first down, but it was one of those situations where Washington called a timeout right as the play happened. So we had to go go fourth and one again, and we took Singletary out. We put in Gore. Guess what? We got stopped because we tried to run his dumb ass up the middle.
3: The, the runs up the middle were infuriating me because it's like, look, if it's not working, it's not working. This is where you as an offensive coordinator have to take the reins. That's
2: right. Spider to, 2 wide banana.
3: You have to have something else that you can throw at this defense with this running back on the field. Because clearly they're keying on whatever it is you're doing. When they see Frank Gore on the field, they know you're going to try to run it up the middle. Okay, throw them something else. Run a play action with Frank Gore back there and throw it to one of your receivers. A tight end. Somebody! Something! The fact that you're not doing it makes me think that maybe you're just not creative enough to handle this. Meanwhile, Chris, Singletary, when you put him on the field, the team distributed the ball so much better, and it made our offense more unpredictable. To me, that's the sign of an offensive coordinator that's still struggling to find any kind of variance in his play calling. So we want to sit here and talk about why our offense doesn't get Even though we're a very good red zone football team, we don't get to the red zone often enough to score points. That's why we're in the bottom 20. Bottom 20 for scoring in the NFL. Well, there's a reason for that. It's because maybe the guy calling the plays is making this offense very predictable. And if that's the case, as we play better defensive football teams, Chris, we're going to get fucked up here. (laughs) <laughs> for, for lack of a better term, these, Chris, you're lining up for you're lining up for trouble if you can't stop being predictable with your personnel usage. I also have a couple other gripes about the way Dable's doing his job. I mean, g- kudos to Sean Murphy, because now that he, as you watch the game, live in the stands, you, you get angry about it, but you can't put context to it. And he did a great job. The McKenzie usage is still a mystery to me. If you look at our wide receiver core right now, John Brown, he he does a great job. He's a good route runner. He seems to have built the chemistry with Josh Allen. He's consistent. He's consistent. Cole Beasley, he's a good underneath route runner. He's not as consistent. He doesn't get as consistently open, but he's also working in a harder area of the field. Because it's, you know what I mean? If if you're one of two guys who see most of your team's passes, eh, it's pretty easy to game plan for that guy. You know what I mean? So with that said, I look at Isaiah McKenzie and I say to myself, this guy is one of the best open field creators you have. When you get the ball in his hands in space, I mean, he's a punt returner. That's why you originally put him on your roster in the first place. He has some wiggle to his game. He has speed. He just doesn't have size. And yet despite that, the only thing that you try to do with him on offense is the one obligatory jet sweep pass per week. And then a few nonsense screen calls that aren't even really screens. Jet sweep when you're first and goal from the two. (sighs) It's it's incredibly frustrating to watch a guy with his physical skill set just in an offense like ours that's starved for explosion to watch week after week after week that we haven't schemed him open at some point just to try to exploit that against opposing defenses. I mean, Chris, look at a couple weeks ago. The Steelers are playing the Miami Dolphins on Monday Night Football. Mason Rudolph throws a 45-yard touchdown pass. Now, it's not because Mason Rudolph made a great throw.
2: Was this the play where the, the, the reporter drew that huge tank in the middle of the field? Yes. All right, gotcha. Follow you.
3: So, you essentially just, by scheming the play properly, you took one of your shiftier wide receivers... And you took two of your faster wide receivers. You bring one, you bring your shifty wide receiver across the offensive formation, you know, from the right side to left. You, know, you split him out wide. He cuts across the formation on almost a deep cross. And you send your other two fast wide receivers on the left-hand side straight down this on go routes. They draw the cornerbacks and the safeties completely out of the box. The guy in his deep cross beats his man. You hit him, and there is no one in front of him who has any space to turn around and try to make a play on the on the receiver. And he ends up taking it 45 yards for a touchdown. Now, that's not because the wide receiver is great. That doesn't happen because the quarterback is great. That happens because a decent offensive coordinator drew up a decent play. Our team has yet to utilize any of our wide receivers in that fashion. And it blows my mind, Chris. It blows my mind that I haven't seen any kind of you know, when you rewatch the game and I get it, all twenty-two, everyone hates the all twenty-two people. Cover one, that's their niche, that's what they do. You can like it, you can not like it. But ultimately, there's guys out there trying to watch and decipher film and tell you what it's about. And as I, I myself sit down with my own game pass and just re-watch these games to try to answer some of these questions, I just don't see us doing anything like this. But all of these teams, Chris, a four and four team can score 45-yard touchdowns, and the Buffalo Bills can't. It's not because we don't have the talent to do so. It's because we're not utilizing the personnel on hand. I would 100% believe that. It's incredibly infuriating. And yet, for everyone who's piling on Brian Dable, there's this. (laughs) Apparently, according to Matt Perino... Brett Favre, uh, Matt Perino of New York Upstate, I should say. because Chris, if you're going to bring up somebody's name in their work, you have to plug it correctly, correct?
2: Correct, and considering he's been on this show twice this season.
3: Uh, Apparently, Brett Favre had this to say to Josh Allen. Brian Dable was my coach when I was with the Jets. I think the world of him. I wish I would have had more time with him. I think he is perfect for you, and he's going to put you in positions to succeed. (laughs) Folks, <laughs> I don't know if that's... Am I supposed to take that seriously? I mean, is this proof that he's just more concussed than anyone wants to give him credit for? Or does he know what he's talking about?
2: I, I don't... I would not... I don't buy into that.
3: I mean, obviously, there's nothing we can do about it, because we can't buy him out like Florida State. Nope. But... There again, if the offense continues to struggle and it continues to be a focal point of the conversations and the press conferences week after week after week, there's going to have to be some answers for this. Chris, I, this, our schedule doesn't get any easier.
2: No, we only have three easy games and then we got a string of tough games.
3: So with that said, he's got to figure his shit out. He's got to do it quick. And I put, I put the fortune of our offense going forward on Dable's shoulders because I'm watching other teams be more productive with similar or less talent. But there is a bright spot on all of the offense besides the efficiency, besides the lack of penalties. Chris, it's ultimately the thing that turned the tide in our favor. Devin Motor Singletary. All right. Can we talk about the man? All
2: right. And this, at this point, you flip your laptop <laughs> and face into my kitchen table.
3: This isn't, the, uh, this isn't the 2019 uh, Rock Sports Network draft show. No, no, no. this is the Rock Pile Report podcast. <sighs> Folks, in just what I think is another example of why during our offseason draft series, I bring in experts, draft analysts from around the country with various you know, credentials and people who tour and people who do this professionally for a living because I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. I rarely know what I'm talking about. I've, I have no ability to judge who is and who isn't good coming out of college. I think I do. And every now and again, I hit on, it's like the game of golf. Every now and again, you hit a shot so nice that it makes you think you could still, ah, I still got it. That's what, that's what talking about the draft is for me. So with that, Devin Singletary, Chris, I mean, this is going to go down in my mind as the quote unquote Singletary game. Yeah. This is the game where he gave us everything.
2: He had a hell of a game.
3: For the first time all season, he was made one of the tent poles of the offense. It's something that guys like you, me, everyone who's been bitching about the offense, we've been screaming for it for weeks. The Bills finally gave us a taste of it, and the results speak for themselves. Three plays of 15 or more, one per quarter. Literally almost one per quarter. He tied the Bills' longest gain of the year with his 49-yard catch and run. Christmas Eve 2017 marks the last time a Bills offensive player had 140 or more total yards from scrimmage until Sunday. Chris, we went a season and a half without having a guy produce 140 total yards.
2: Yeah, it could have been done earlier if he didn't have that hamstring injury. But, you know... The one I think the one the one added play that you can add to our offense with Singletary is the screen pass. Because you're not running a screen with Gore. We get Singletary out there, he runs that beautiful screen pass for was it 49 yards?
3: Brilliant. I haven't seen that all year. Well, and here's the thing, unlike Gore, he wasn't pigeonholed to just operating inside the tackle box with blockers. His carries and targets were all over the field. Chris he ran off left tackle, he ran up in the middle, he ran off guard. they threw him slip screens out from behind tackles and tight ends in space. There's even a deep shot that they took to him on what I think was a wheel route where he was de- he had to be defended by defensive back Josh Norman. Their number one cornerback had to break up a pass intended for our running back. He's all over the field, Chris. That's a weapon. And for the first time all season, we've seen him utilized to what I think could be his true potential. He didn't just allow us to utilize a more balanced personnel grouping or just keep the offense off kilter. He provided a spark. And he's yet again another sterling example of why I'm bad at draft projection to the NFL. That's it. That's it. Far and away. And that's why he finishes Sunday as my hero of the week. Do you know who the real heroes are?
2: The guys who wake up every morning and go into their normal jobs and get a distress call from the commissioner and take off their glasses and change into capes and fly around fighting crime. See, I like he's a third-round pick. You have other third-round running backs. You're Alvin Kamara's uh, Kareem Hunt when he's not hitting women. You're finding running backs in the second, third, fourth round that are coming out and just dominating the league. And hopefully he can continue this to be that type of player for us.
3: We can only hope. But his explosion was undeniable. He was undeniable, Chris. If you want to talk about talent levels, Sunday, Devin Singletary was undeniable. For the entirety of the game, he was the guy who was just... When you look at the plays he was able to achieve... You can't argue that he wasn't the guy. He was the motor. Motor's his nickname. He was the motor of our offense. Paste everything for us on Sunday. I don't know how you do it any better than that. And then, Chris, for this week's zero of the week. <laughs> wow, you suck at this.
2: How can I mean, it not be Brian Daybold? <laughs> Let's run Frank Gore three times. First and goal, up the middle. What are we going to do on second down? Hey, give the ball to Gore up the middle. What are we going to do on third down? Frank Gore right up the middle. This isn't working. Hey, what do you want to do second and goal? Hey, let's run a jet sweep with Isaiah McKenzie. Oh, what do you want to do on uh, second down from the seven? Oh, let's just roll out Josh Allen until he gets sacked. Oh, and then what do you want to do? Let's, ho- let's have a holding call and then kick a field goal from the 24. Brian, D- Brian Dable is going to come up with some better shit. And he's got three cupcakes coming up to work on this shit before we see Baltimore, Pittsburgh, and New England in consecutive weeks. (laughs) Oh, my
0: God.
1: Oh,
3: God. I mean, Chris, my final thoughts of the week. Despite all the fan angst and frustration over what quote-unquote could be, this is a team that is beating the guys who the schedule makers put in front of us. And in that way... They're slowly, and when I say slow, I'm thinking of, uh, what is it? Gunnery Sergeant Hartman from, uh, from Full Metal Jacket yelling at Gomer Pyle trying to climb. Pyle! You clap my gold people! Fuck! I'm picturing that's the level of speed that this offense is coming together. But you are slowly seeing this. You're slowly seeing this offense round into some semblance of form. Chris, they, 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 we have ups and we have downs. But they're still finding a way and they're still giving us new things. That's the thing I think. New things. This Devil, Devin Singletary thing, it's new. We haven't seen that before. Now I'm calling for the Isaiah McKenzie Incorporation and the Robert Foster Incorporation. You can't just run him on – you can't give him one target every single week. Not if if you want him to be considered a legitimate threat in this offense.
2: Yeah, we got at Cleveland, at Miami.
3: And if he's not good enough, then you need to figure out what else to do because your tight ends, who you've been targeting two to three to four times a piece for every game this week – or every game this week, every game this month, they're – as a position group, they only have 23 catches. Chris, there are multiple tight ends who have more than twenty-three catches. Our tight end group, Tyler Croft. Everyone thought when he came back from injury, he was going
2: to be—he was going
3: to be the stabilizing thing for our tight that end. That
2: injury group. still could be nagging him.
3: Okay, well, I don't, I don't want to hear that. I don't care. You find a way then to st- then stop giving them the targets. Figure out another place for it to go where it might be productive, because they're leading the. I think Dawson Knox is leading all tight ends in drops right now. But he's a rookie. That's to be expected. So maybe don't put so much on this young kid's plate, especially a kid who only caught 18 passes last year. There are things here to be worked out, but they're slowly rounding into form. At the end of the day, you are what your record says you are. And right now, Chris, we're, we're six and two.
2: Six and two, you're, at Cleveland, at Miami, home Denver, those teams combined six and nineteen record.
3: I mean, Chris, if your record your record is who you are. You won those games. They count. You and I can sit here and talk about the value of those wins or the quality of them. But at the end of the day, it's a win.
2: Yeah. It's
3: We're like four it- games away from being a ten win football team with literally half of a season to go. Yeah. It's like an
2: Alabama football schedule, all cupcakes.
3: Can we can we not just sit here and enjoy this for a minute? The fact that somehow we are four wins shy of the 10-win mark. Chris, when's the last time you remember a 10-win football team? Jesus. Yeah!
2: I just moved to Georgia.
3: Yeah, you, you <laughs> lived in the South! Yeah. That's how long it's been. So let's let's not get all caught up in our feelings and the angst and this idea that the sky is still going to somehow fall. And I know I've been that guy, but I don't know. Something happened Sunday. And I just, I feel like we're in a place we haven't been in almost two decades. Six wins week nine. I mean, that, that means something. Okay. Chris, you are what your record says you are. The dolphins with their one win. <laughs> are they are they still the worst team in football? I don't know. Not statistically. <laughs> Not statistically. <laughs> that seems like a good jumping off point to start off the A this week's AFC East Roundup, week nine edition. And of course, New York and Miami. The Dolphins 26, the Jets 18. Somehow. Both of these teams managed to lose on the same day.
1: You folks fell on your face. You get an F minus in my book.
3: (laughs) Chris, holy shit. Explain to me, Chris. Do you remember how my my ringtone on your phone used to be the, explain this to me, because you thought I sounded like Elf. Yeah. (laughs) Explain to me how a team with its quote-unquote franchise quarterback who just went on a spending spree this past offseason, and who isn't trying to be the worst team in the NFL, loses a game like this. How does that happen?
2: It's coaching. It's simply coaching. That team has given up on on Adam Gase, and Adam Gase is just a trash coach.
3: Meanwhile, what the fuck is Miami doing? Are you trying to give Cincinnati the path to the number one pick? What are you doing? See, and Chris, that underscores, I guess, one of the points that I've heard made elsewhere, but GMs tank. Executives tank. You know who doesn't tank? The guys who have to go down there on the field and actually put their bodies on the line every single week to win a football game. No one is ever going to tell you that those players are going to be intentionally bad. And that game right there is a perfect example of it. Chris, the initials... (laughs) The initial shock of the final score of that game seems compounded when you dig into the game and realize that it was never even close, not even remotely. The Jets scored in the first quarter and then immediately gave up three straight touchdown throws to Ryan Fitzpatrick. And it's, n- it's not like the Dolphins figured out how to be a competent football team. They immediately gave up a safety before halftime because they're not, because they're not good. It's like a reminder. Hey, don't get excited, folks. We're still shitbags. The game, Chris. It, I don't know. Do I? Do you have my password for the Game Pass? Absolutely not. Would you like it? Because I'd like you probably. To be, I'd like you to be able to go back and watch what. I You can watch the condensed version of these games, and the whole thing fits into the span of thirty eight minutes.
2: No, I'd rather go see my ex wife
3: <laughs>
2: than have to <laughs> rewatch that.
3: Absolutely not. Chris, I could have gotten marshmallows and roasted them over this uh, this bonfire of ineptitude. It was fucking great. First of all, the Finns as a team somehow only rushed for 48 yards. As a team. That's counting quarterback scrambles and all. The Jets secondary gave up 288 yards through the air to Ryan Fitzpatrick. Their former quarterback. (laughs) Both teams somehow gave up a safety in the game. Chris, do you remember a game where both teams got safety? No. I don't even know the last time I saw that with my own two eyes. While trailing by nine points, the Jets offense somehow, with their quote-unquote quarterback whisperer head coach, could only muster a pair of second-half field goals. That's it. That's all they had for the entire second half against the Dolphins defense. You throw in knee injuries to each team's best player with Le'Veon Bell and Preston Williams. Of course, I don't know who I feel worse for. The fans who had to watch the game? The players who have to play in it? Or the people whose paycheck depends on talking about the game for the rest of the week? Like this poor asshole, Joe Benigo from WFAN.
1: I don't know what to say today. I'm just i I'm, I'm played out as a Jet fan. Uh, it is an absolute disgrace What we watched yesterday, Adam Gay should be fired, should have been fired on the field after this game, because not only did they lose in just brutal fashion to a team that's trying to lose every game they play, but he quit on his team yesterday, too. This coach, and you reported pointed this out, Ev, this coach yesterday quit on his football team. So this coach who should have never been hired in the first place. And I don't know how Christopher Johnson can look at himself in the mirror today that he hired this absolute disgrace. And we thought Todd Bowles was bad. And we thought Richie Cotite was bad. This may be the worst coach in the history of the franchise. He should go now. I, I, I don't know what else to say anymore, bro. I am so disgusted. I, I, this, I am so embarrassed today to be a fan of this team. But the real culprit here is Christopher Johnson, who's over his head as an owner, has no clue how to own a football team. His brother gave him the freaking reins, how he allowed Adam Gaze to sell him a bill of goods or to whoever he listened to, Peyton Manning, or whoever else was singing Gaze's praises, okay? And he wound up giving this guy not only the head coaching job, but complete control of the franchise? Christopher Johnson, how the hell can you look in the mirror today? How can you go face the Jet fans with the disgrace that your franchise is right now? I, I, I don't know what else to say. And it's an out-and-out out freaking disgrace. Gaze is a disaster. This guy's clueless. It's unreal. He was a disgrace at the press conference. And I got to give Manish meta. Manish? I'm giving you props here, man. I've had a lot of problems with you. I give you props here. Good for you. That question you asked, Gaze, A's, at the end, of the end of the press conference, does this justify Stephen Ross firing you? God bless you.
2: That is Joe Benino from WFAN. Dude, it was like an 18-minute clip. I wanted to play the whole thing, but <laughs> I, I had to condense it down to two minutes.
3: <laughs> you know that it's bad. When someone is bringing together New York City radio and reporter personalities who despise each other. When you're bringing the New York City media together in their hatred for you, you... Chris, when they're invoking the name Rich Cotite... <laughs> hey, come on! <laughs> oh, who doesn't feel good? Chris... I'm a petty human being and I love this. Chris, I feel warm and fuzzy inside just hearing that clip again. Oh
2: my god. I know. I can't wait till vicious. I can't wait till next podcast and we'll have another clip from Joe Benino.
3: Oh dude, he's gold. Guys, head over to WFAN. Go check him out at ten AM on Monday mornings after the next Jets atrocity. <laughs> when they don't fire the head coach. If you ever feel badly about your own team, it'll make you feel great. And then talk about things that make us all feel great. New England, the Ravens 37, the Patriots 20. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I understand that in terms of the wildcard race, I probably should not be thrilled that the Patriots lost. But as a fan, as just a fan of football, I can't. I physically am incapable of rooting for New England in anything, at any point in time, even if it's in my own best interest. And this weekend was great. I mean, guys, normally if I told you I watched a Patriots game and I was subjected to poor execution, costly turnovers, untimely penalties, and a temper tantrum on the sidelines, you'd have to assume that I was describing New England's opponent, right? I mean, Chris, that's what you'd think.
2: Yeah. I mean, I was the opposite of you. I was polling for New England. I have so much hatred for Lamar Jackson, but that's only because the national media sings his praises. He hasn't been putting out world beating numbers. I think Baltimore is similar to the Bills. The only difference is that Baltimore has now two signature wins at Seattle and then a home, this home game against New England.
3: Chris, you can talk about it all you want, but he's Tyrod Taylor. He's a little bit more accurate than Tyrod Taylor, and he's a little bit faster. Yeah,
2: he's like Tyrod Taylor, except he doesn't dress as well or enunciate as well. And guess who his
3: offensive coordinator is? The guy that Rex Ryan figured could bring the best out of Tyrod Taylor, offensive coordinator Greg Roman. Let's not overlook this. He's not the first coach to think that this kind of combination could work. He's just the first one to find the right skill set at quarterback to make it work. I mean, kudos to Lamar Jackson. You did something that what one Bills quarterback in the last 15 years has done. You humbled the Patriots. Good for you. Chris, even though you hate him, let's toast it. I know, okay, (laughs) I know what everyone says when you see the Pats go down and lose a game. I've read it over on all the Pat's blogs this week. They're all saying, well, this this happened at the perfect time because this is the win, this is the loss that we needed to help us win future games because it's going to be the wake-up call. It's going to be the thing that pulls us back together. We, as outsiders, all want to hope that's the beginning of the end or that it's the inevitable sign of unraveling that we've all been desperately waiting for. To me, Chris... Watching the way that they lost, it was different for me than a lot of other Patriots losses for a few reasons. First, the Patriots' rushing attack was once again completely phased out of the game. And that's fine if and when your quarterback is carrying the load and carving up the opposing defense, but it's been three weeks since the Patriots had more than 80 yards rushing in a single game, and they've played the Jets and the Browns in that time span. Christian, their offense is slowly becoming very one-dimensional.
2: Hopefully it stays like that when we play them again.
3: The Ravens' defense got carved up by Baker Mayfield for, what, 40 points?
2: Yeah, 40 points.
3: And Tom Brady got half of that. Because their offense is very one-dimensional. Nobody wants to talk about that. The fact that their rushing attack is struggling so, so badly. Mistake-free football has been the Patriots' brand for more than a decade. You typically think to yourself that to beat them, you have to, Chris, for the Bills to beat the Patriots, we have to be perfect and also be a little lucky. That's the way we've looked at it forever, but look at the last game. The last time we played the Patriots, three interceptions, and yet, Josh Allen's in in the fourth quarter to lead a fourth quarter drive. We're still in that football game until the final possession.
2: You also left out pay um,
3: hey, the referees in advance. Beside that, though, when you look at it on the field, in this game, it was the Patriots taking seven penalties, turning the ball over twice, one of which went back for a 70 yard touchdown. And just going 5 of 13 on third down. Uncharacteristic, but not uncharacteristic of a, I don't know, an offense that's starting to get figured out by opposing defenses who might have athleticism in their secondary enough to handle what it is that's being thrown at them. And then you look at the Patriots' defense. They were drawing comparisons to the 85 Bears playing teams like Miami, the Jets, Washington, the Giants. But against an unorthodox offense sparked by a mobile quarterback, they just got gashed to death to the tune of 210 total yards on the ground and multiple scores. Now, I know a lot of people want to hope that that's an outlier. (laughs) There's a lot of people out there who are saying, "I, I hope this doesn't continue because their next four opponents all feature mobile quarterbacks with decent to pretty good backfields behind them. And if the Ravens just provided a blueprint for how to make the Pets secondary irrelevant, you just found it. Chris, I mean, think about it. The defensive backs in that game didn't have to worry. You know, everyone crows about how good Stephon Gilmore is.
2: Yeah, fuck that guy.
3: It didn't matter. It didn't matter how good he was because they took guys like Stefan Gilmore out of the game. They made the game about who wins in the front seven. And because your quarterback is such a weapon running the ball, you have to account for him, which allowed Mark Ingram to go for over a hundred yards. They put the blueprint out there as to if you want to if you just want to bet smash the Patriots, here's how you do it. And their upcoming teams all have the skill sets to accomplish that. So, Chris, hopefully they figure it out. Or not. <laughs> hopefully. Oh, my God. Chris, I can't tell you. You, you. I know you, under, you wanted to see the Ravens lose. Tell me, though, that it doesn't feel good sitting here knowing that the Patriots don't have another undefeated season at their hands.
2: Yeah, that is good. And they're also one game behind it or ahead of us.
3: Fucking right. And with that said, fuck the Patriots. (laughs) I'm sorry, guys. It's just a shtick that I can't move off of. I love this this idea. Fuck those clowns. Fuck them. Fuck New England. Fuck clam chowder. fuck, Fuck everything to do with that part of the country. But we've got bigger fish to fry right now. We don't play them for weeks. We're here in week 10. And on the docket... Chris, is something I've been dreading since I saw the schedule come out. Week 10, Buffalo Bills at the Cleveland Browns. Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard. Place, First Energy Stadium. Deep in the mistake on the lake that is Cleveland, Ohio. The weather, rainy and 45 degrees. The exact weather that a game like this deserves. The the officiating crew is Ron Torbert.
2: And on the call, Andrew Catalan and James Lofton. CBS.
3: That's actually a pretty good, you know what? I like those guys. They're not, sp- hey, listen, they're oh. no Spiro Didis.
2: I know. Well, we do get Andrew Catalan for our preseason games, so. I know. There's that.
3: So I'm looking forward to being at home, warm, dry, and comfortable for a Sunday, getting to watch a Bills football game. But With that said, folks, I don't know about the rest of you out there, there are fewer things I dread more than the Buffalo Bills playing the Cleveland Browns blame me they've put together some of the worst displays of american football i've ever witnessed with my own two eyes chris can we run it down for the poor people first of all the 8 nothing game in a snowstorm
2: yeah, we needed that game for uh, playoff implications
3: the 6-3 to game literally one of the quarterbacks involved had 12 yards passing at halftime And the only reason that it didn't go into overtime was because Roscoe Parrish fumbled the punt return. The Browns gained no yardage, but kicked a game-winning field goal. 6-3. to The Monday Night Football game where Trent Edwards threw three first-quarter interceptions. Somehow, Cleveland only gets three points off of all that. Trent then refuses to throw a ball more than three yards from the line of scrimmage, and what will forever go down is the birth of Captain Checkdown, and we somehow lose 2927 on a field goal wide right. <laughs> and then the Thursday night football game, Chris, the dual knee injury game. Everyone showed up for EJ Manuel versus Brian Horrier and ended up getting Jeff Toole versus Brandon Wheaton. Somehow, both quarterbacks went down with knee injuries within five minutes of game clock of each other. Because of course they won! It's the Browns and the Bills! Whenever these guys get together, something terrible happens. Chris, these two teams are the NFL equivalent of Godzilla and Mothra. Okay? They show up, they ruin everything for everybody, and then they leave. And in their wake is just disaster. And a mess that the rest of us have to try to clean up. I have long advocated that they shouldn't be allowed to play these games on U.S. soil and should instead have to do it, I don't know, Hiroshima, maybe the Marshall Islands. Because at least if they play there, they might not be viewed as the biggest disaster to ever take place there. And yet here we are doing this again. It's coming whether we like it or not. So buckle up, Bills fans, because I'm positive that this will somehow turn into a shit show. But so with that, I mean, if we're going to put some context into what I'm assuming is going to be just absolute misery in terms of football, we have a guest joining us tonight who's going to walk us through this upcoming matchup. First timer for the Rock Report podcast, but a long time coming. Mr. Spencer German, how are you, sir?
4: Drew, I'm doing well, man. I got to say, uh, I know I've, I've joked with you about trying to get on the podcast, so I'm, I'm honored that my time has finally come.
3: Oh, man. Well, listen, they make us play each other. Like I said, they, they need to move this thing overseas, but they don't. So here we are <laughs> talking about it. Folks, for those of you at home, Spencer German, he works for 92.3 The Fan in Cleveland, and he covers the Browns for NeosportsInsiders.com. We also know each other. We have an affiliation through the Rock Sports Network crew. You know, We've done some of the draft shows together. We've some done some of the off-season things together. Spencer is, I guess, loosely from the area or at least spent enough time here that he somehow got affiliated with the same people I know. Like like Ryan Lacell, that guy. I mean, essentially <laughs> Chas Bono. I mean, c- come on. Well, let's face it. I mean, the hair, the, the physique, it's all there, right?
4: Oh, 100%. I, you, you guys dropped that comparison on me before we started recording here, and now that's all I'm going to picture. Anytime I see Ryan Lace still anywhere, that's going to be the, the picture in my head is Chaz Bona, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, so, Spencer,
3: you've kind of gone on in your career. You're now in the Ohio area covering the Cleveland Browns. What is that like? What's that like being a guy whose content – I mean, literally – from one suffering football team to another, what's it like to have to talk about that every day?
4: You know it's, it's interesting because as you know, I, I was covering the bills for a time mm-hmm. and, um, oh yeah they are <laughs> They are very comparable in the sense that you know similar fan bases, both very passionate about their teams, both have a, a more losing tradition, I guess in some respects at least recently than winning tradition. Um, so there they are certainly the comparisons are there. But um, it, it's interesting because you know when I moved back to Cleveland after graduating from John Kerry University here in Cleveland in twenty in twenty seventeen, or I graduated in twenty thirteen, moved back in twenty seventeen. Um, yeah. I sort of started doing some of the stuff for NEO Sports Insiders, and um, that Browns team were in the mid. That that was the team that was in the midst of that zero sixteen season. So then the year after that, there's all this hype because you know you draft Baker Mayfield, John Dorsey's here. All of a sudden, you're thinking it's it's going to be different. And they start the year bad. They finish it strong. And then this year you come in and, I mean, there's always hype about when the Bills season rolled around and even <laughs> when the Browns season rolled around. But the hype here in Cleveland for the Browns season this year was at like an all-time high. I mean, Odell Beckham Jr. is here. You got Freddie Kitchens, who's just a, a, a Cleveland buzzword uh, machine. Everything he says, Cleveland fans just salivate over because he's I, – I, I've said recently – that Freddie Kitchens is the guy that Browns fans want to drink with at the tailgate party, but not necessarily the guy that should be coaching this team as we've seen through eight weeks of the season. Well, I, guess um, this so, is
3: a, well, I was going to say, I guess this is a good place to start our conversation because before we get into every matchup, i like to f- just pick the brain of our guest about the full, I guess a philosophical conversation about the team. Now, I'm looking at a tweet from Daniel Jeremiah from yesterday where he tweeted out that this Browns season is a great example of the difference between collecting talent and building a team. What kind of an impact does the way this season has unfolded for the Cleveland Browns have on a fan base? I mean, you're talking about a group of people who endured a winless season and for some reason felt it necessary to throw a parade about it. And they were, to your point, made an offseason darling by the media. What has this season done to the Cleveland Browns fan base?
4: You know, it wasn't until I would say until this past week with the loss of the Broncos, I think there were still a lot of fans that were, you know, gung-ho, head over over heels, all in on this season. Because, I mean, you come off a loss to the Patriots, a lot of teams lose to the Patriots. I think (laughs) everybody knew. Guilty! (laughs) Um, Yeah, you guys guys obviously know that all too well. (laughs) Um, to say the least. Um, but you, you came out of that, that early stretch of the season, and, and when the schedule came out, most Browns fans looked at it and said, all right, the top, the top portion of the schedule is tough. It's that second half of the season where you got the Broncos and you got the Cardinals and you got the Bills were a game that they circled and said, oh, that should be an easy win. So th- they were looking at the second half of the schedule as the point, the chance where, okay, this is where they're really going to show who they are. But then they start that stretch with the loss of the Broncos on Sunday. And, I mean, its I wouldn't say it's pandemonium and mayhem and people are just giving up, but I think it's a lot of, okay, same old Browns. That, that's a lot of what I've been hearing from fans, a lot of people who are sort of just, all right, this team is just destined to always just be bad. Even when we have the offseason that we had, we get the players that we get, Odell Beckham Jr., for instance, uh, Olivier Vernon for another. It, it, we're just destined to be bad. I think that's just sort of the, the feeling and it's, it's a common f- – the thing is, like, it's not anything new for Browns fans. They're used to feeling that for the last 20 years. But, obviously, it's disappointing when you go into a season thinking, all right, this is finally the year. And as you said, they were hyped up by the media. There's people saying they could be a Super Bowl contender. They were, I think, had the third or fourth best odds in Vegas to win the Super Bowl. Like, all that factors in. So it's a it's a feeling of disappointment to the point where I've said – I think there's going to be a lot of Bills fans at the stadium on Sunday because I think people are already going to start selling their season tickets.
3: See, that's brutal. And I guess one of the other things that I look at in terms of off-season hype, I think about Baker Mayfield. Now, Baker Mayfield and this Freddie Kitchens thing. First of all, I'm sure fans have cooled on Baker Mayfield, but in terms of the head coach – Freddie Kitchens, to your eye, I mean, if we're talking about all these philosophical things going on around the team, before we talk about what goes on on the field, is Freddie Kitchens truly as bad in your opinion as advertised? I mean, I have a a report from one of your uh, quote from one of your local reporters that it quote unquote seems Freddie Kitchens seems like a fan who won a contest to call a play on game day and just (laughs) never gave back the headset.
4: That's Wait, a, who no. tweeted that. That's awesome. Oh, I'm gonna Wait, find it. That?
3: I'm gonna find it. And I'll, I'll I'll tweet it to you later. It, when I saw it, it made me That's cry with do. laughter. Now, and I mean, I get it. He's taken a lot of a lot of abuse nationally. The 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 draw play on fourth down. Yeah. The unwinnable challenge against Seattle that cost him the opportunity to challenge something he might have won ten minutes later in the game. The intentional false start against New England. That's
4: the one. That's the kicker right there.
3: Uh, I mean, so when you look at this, he's made multiple mistakes on a national stage, things that have gotten a lot of attention. What is the public perception and what is your perception of who Freddie Kitchens is as a head coach?
4: I think, so the thing with Freddie Kitchens, and I sort of alluded to this already, but he won, I mean, and again, winning press conferences means nothing. The Browns fans learned that with Hugh Jackson. I mean, he came in and was guns ablaze and throwing out these quotes, and people were like, oh, this is the guy, and we saw where that got him. Um, but same thing with Freddie Kitchens. Like The difference was Freddie Kitchens didn't have this like ego about him that Hugh Jackson did. So he came in, and he seemed like the perfect guy for Cleveland. I mean, he was dropping lines like, "If you don't wear brown and orange, you don't matter." Uh, That's something that's constantly played on like local radio, like Freddie Kitchens' quote about that. And slowly, we're hearing it dwindle because suddenly people are jumping off the Freddie Kitchens (laughs) bandwagon. But when (laughs) when he first came in, I mean, it was gung ho Freddie Kitchens. Like the debate in the off season was, "Do you give the job to Greg Williams?" was the interim head coach after Hugh Jackson was fired? do you give the job to Freddie Kitchens? That was basically it. And there was people throwing out their suggestions. Oh, you know, Josh McDaniels, whoever else was out out there, the hot candidates. But for the most part, I think people in Cleveland were like, well, I either want Greg Williams because we had success with him, or I want Freddie Kitchens because he had success with Baker. It it, it really is interesting just how things have evolved and how he's fallen from the good graces so quickly. I mean, less than a year after people started loving this guy – He's already, people are jumping off and saying it's time for this guy to go. And people have been saying that since like week three or four, where they're like, all right, this guy just isn't it. He doesn't have the right play calling. He's making terrible in game decisions. This guy's just not it. And I sort of, if you know me, Drew, you know that I try to like ease off the, you know, fire guy too soon thing. I usually say you got to give him a year. But I think after this last weekend, I'm at the point, too, where I'm like, uh, it might be time to move on. because it, it, it just doesn't seem like it's working for him.
1: To me,
3: one of the most egregious things that he's failed to do, and we said this
4: all preseason
3: long and nobody wanted to hear it, his lack of ability to manage the egos. The guy yeah. has never been a head coach at any level. He's only been an offensive coordinator for nine games and was a running back coach for five guys, not 53. He, when you look at what he does and what he doesn't do through a Bills lens, if I look at what Sean McDermott came in and did for this team versus what Freddie Kitchens has done for the Browns, I see a coach who's found a way to foster—I don't know—a sense of personal responsibility for the outcome of every game within every player. Yeah, not just the marquee players, but he's fostered this feeling within all 53 guys who set foot on that football field. You know, he always talks about, do your 111th. Do your 111th, and we will come out with a better result more often than not. If everybody mans their responsibility, and everybody's looking at the man next to him saying, hey, listen, if you need help, talk to me about it. We will figure it out. To me, I'm looking at Freddie Kitchens, and the one thing I see is a coach who cannot Pull his team. He can't motivate them to motivate themselves. You've got OBJ freelancing to try to put the team on his back instead of trusting the system and the guys around him. You've got Mayfield, who's made a number of poor plays when he thinks, hey, I'm gonna have to be the guy who brings this team back single handedly. Instead of yeah. just trusting the team and the system, which starts with the coach, and I just feel like this was the this was the nightmare scenario. Everyone was afraid that this guy was going to be in over his head when it came to this specific group of individuals and their personalities. And it's almost sort of coming to fruition. Would you agree with that?
4: Oh, for sure. I mean, saying he's in over his head is probably the best way to describe it. You could use the metaphor of like, you know, you push your kid in the pool to teach him how to how to swim. Like that's the same sort of thing. Like he got thrown into the deep end of the pool and he's drowning in, in every instance along the way. And the, the worst part is, Drew, like – you go from early in the season, you can you can understand those things. Like, all right, yeah, he challenged a play, maybe he shouldn't, or he made a bad play call. Okay, but we're now eight games in, and he's still making the same mistakes. And that's the problem to me. Like, you're, you're still making the same mistakes as a coach. Your team is still making the same mistakes with penalties. You're still turning the ball over. And then his explanation after the game is, well, it's on me. I'm not getting ready, and we need to execute better. He just keeps saying the same thing over and over again. And you, you brought up Sean McDermott. I love when I was covering the Bills. Like I thought Sean McDermott was great for that team because he came in, he had a vision, and he knew what he wanted to do. And he's clearly, in a couple years here, built up a team that went from being a laughingstock at one point to being competitive. And they're hanging in games with the Patriots now. They're not just getting steamrolled at Orchard Park. So they, he had a vision for this team. And I'm not saying Freddie Kitchens didn't have a vision for the team. I just don't know that his vision, like you sort of mentioned, has resonated with the guys in the locker room. And one of the things that's interesting to me, and I've said this a couple times this year, he got that job because of how successful he was with Baker Mayfield. And that hasn't been the case this year. They're clearly both struggling together, whether it be one or the other maybe doing more so to hurt, hurt, hurt the other. But it's not working right now. And my thought process behind it is maybe Freddie Kitchens was better at running Hugh Jackson or, or uh, Todd Haley or whoever's offense they were running last year. Maybe he was better at running their offense than they were, but he might not have a good idea or vision of like what his offense should be and how to execute it. Because, and I mean, there's no way they changed offenses to Freddie Kitchens' offense mid-season last year after they fired no. Hugh Jackson. So they were running Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley's plays, and then it was working. <laughs> but now this year, where he's been put in charge of our right, you put your offense in, it's just been an utter disaster.
3: I mean, ultimately, that makes me feel so much better as a Bills fan. Just (laughs) No, but just seeing the coaching. Right. Because that's so important to the fortunes of a team. And when you watch it get poorly executed, it gives you a better appreciation for what you have. Because I know there's plenty of people here in the Buffalo area who bag on our coach and talk about how he's not a strong enough personality or he doesn't know enough about offense. Well, sometimes it's just knowing what your skill set is. And then allowing people around you to do their jobs. And that ultimately seems to be a lot of what's holding him back. I mean, one of the things that McDermott, I think, has to his advantage that Kitchens didn't. To your point, he was running somebody else's system for the nine games that he ever got to be a coordinator. Whereas you're talking about it. We had a defensive-minded head coach who could come in here and install at least one whole side of a football team with a system that he believed in and he's orchestrated well in the past. And that's kind of what he's successful. with, absolutely. Well, and that's where I want to start with you guys. Is I want to talk about the defense. I mean, the, the defense is one of the few things anybody's talking about, and I want to give that a little bit of press before we move on. This defense for the Cleveland Browns, you mentioned the fact that you brought in Olivier Vernon. You drafted Denzel Ward last year, who was highly touted after the 2018 season. You spent another first-round pick on Greedy Williams. Or no, was it a second-round pick?
4: It was second-round because they okay. traded their first-rounder in the OBJ deal. Yes.
3: So you gave away a first-round draft pick for OBJ. You brought in Greedy Williams, though. You got rid of Jabril Peppers because you didn't think you needed him. And you brought in more safety help. You guys assumed – I mean, I, I, I thought during the run-up to the preseason, you know, through the preseason and into the you know, training camp phase of the offseason – Everything I read, this was supposed to be one of the most fearsome Browns defenses to ever take the field. And then heading into the game against Denver, you guys were 22nd ranked in scoring, 28th in fourth quarter scoring, and 20th in the red zone. What what exactly has gone wrong for the Browns on defense this year? What is the issue?
4: I think one of the biggest things, probably, is injuries. Again, not to use that as an excuse for any team. No, you know, not it's at all. always next man up. Is is the mentality. Um, but and I know we we sort of mentioned it was something we were going to talk about. Just with the secondary being so injured as it has been throughout the year, um, there was a stretch of I think three straight games where they were missing in some combination three fourths of their secondary, their starting secondary. And granted, the guys that filled in like T.J. Carey. Jermaine Whitehead, who's obviously no longer with the team after uh, his <laughs> title ty- weekend. You know what's um, funny
3: about hang can I stop you for a second? What's funny about yeah, that yeah. is that I take to Twitter all the time when I'm hammered and I'm angry <laughs> and I'm pissed off about Bills games. I've never once threatened to kill anybody. I've never <laughs> I've never thrown any racial slurs around. I feel like Wood-tree? I feel like as a Wood-tree? guy who's making hundreds of thousands of dollars a week doing this job, you should probably know better than I do.
4: What's crazy is he apparently – there was a reporter who said he was standing at his locker full uniform after the game on his phone sending out those tweets. Like he didn't even bother changing or anything. He wasn't in clothes. He was standing there full jersey, full uniform, pads still on, just sending out these these, uh, racist or – Threatening kids to people you. like like Dude, that's stop. a bizarre image, but stop. I mean, my god, man! Dude, <laughs> Twitter, Twitter. <laughs> pretty crazy.
3: Th- th- further proof that social media will be the thing that ruins all of us someday.
4: Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. It's interesting because like you wonder if you could start putting in st- like stipulations in guys' contracts about if you stay off your phone. Oh, it's for coming. A season, we'll oh, we'll it's give you coming. like a million dollars at the end of the year, <laughs> but then you also wonder how that hurts hurts their their brand. Like a guy like OBJ, like is he gonna agree to stay on social media if he can help his brand by being on it? I mean, I
3: don't know. Well but, that's that's but, a whole other conversation we're gonna get into, but I'll yeah. tell you this. Right. To your point, right. that sure. your your defense has been banged up. So there's been injuries in the secondary which I think has really hurt their ability to cover. Yeah. When I think about what their scheme is, I mean, to my eyes, I don't know. What is it that they're trying to be? Are they a zone defense? Are they a man defense? Do they try to mix their coverages between the two? I mean, what is it that they're trying to accomplish there?
4: So I think, I mean, with some of the guys they have, like Greedy Williams is a guy who you bring in to play man-to-man. Same with Denzel Ward. Both those guys can play man-to-man. But the problem has been, of course, that with those guys injured for quite a few games, haven't necessarily been able to implement that as much. I, I, to me, the injuries are obviously a factor, but one of the biggest differences with the defense this year versus last year, and why there was so much hype about this group going in, is that their turnover differential is crazy bad in comparison to last year. I mean, last year they were fourth in the league in with in, in interceptions with 17 interceptions. This year, their turnover di- di- differential as a team is the fifth worst right now at minus eight. So, and that's again. That's factoring in your offensive struggles as well, where Baker's thrown 12 interceptions, which leads the league. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're, you're, they're just not getting the turnovers like they did last year, and that's been the biggest difference. Because, And I always like to say with a, with a defense in general and with a secondary in general, um, it's, it's sort of like, I know, Drew, you love baseball. I know how much you love baseball.
3: <laughs> that's forking but, the fuck itself.
4: <laughs> but it's sort of like a bullpen from year to year. Every year. Like, you could have the best bullpen in baseball one year, and then the next year your bullpen could be complete shit. Like, that, that's just the way it goes with baseball. And that's the same thing I think a lot of times with defenses. One year your defense can be great. One year you can be grabbing a ton of interceptions, creating a bunch of turnovers and opportunities for your offense. And then the next year it can be just the complete opposite. And I think that's sort of what we've seen. The, other, the last thing I'll mention, the offense hasn't done them any favors. There's been a lot of times where they're thrown into a situation with a short field, Trying to stop an offense and and it just doesn't work out. So that's another factor, obviously, as well.
3: One of the things that I'm most interested in, though, when it comes to the Browns' defense, you want to, because I'm I just watched watching the last few weeks of the Bills' offense operate. The thing that seems to dictate the pace of the game is the success of the opposing front seven. You guys quietly have one of. I want to say the in terms of overall talent, whether or not they execute, eh, that's debatable. But one of the better overall front sevens in all of football. I mean, right now you're you're ranked eighth in sack totals. You have Olivier Vernon. You have the number one overall pick, Miles Garrett. You have a lot of raw talent up there. You've got some linebackers who can who can roam around, Christian Kirksey, even though he his name isn't a household name. He tackles. The guy tackles yeah. and he tackles well. You well, got,
4: Kirksey's also out right for the season because he tore his bicep. But, yeah.
3: Oh, thank God. Because I was like, oh, Jesus, I know that name. Everyone else that's <laughs> playing in your front seven, I guess that's where my questions start. What is the story with your front seven, considering what an impact that has on what the Bills do on offense?
4: Yeah, I so I, I do think maybe the one – the biggest hole they have on defense right now is probably in the linebacking core. Joe schobert has been awesome filling in for. I mean, he's he usually starts anyway, but he sort of has taken the reins of being the manager, the 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 captain, if you will, on defense because Christian Kirksey got hurt. Um, so he's done great, but they just don't have the guys who can you know track a guy down and make plays at this point. Mac Wilson's shown some signs as a rookie. That Alabama. He can make some plays, but- Alabama yeah, boy. Alabama guy, exactly. That. Yeah, you knew that one right off the bat. Um, so, yeah, he, uh, he's made some plays, but I think he's still a little bit raw. To me, like, the, the issue that they need to address on defense in the offseason, at least at this point, is linebacker. And, and it's crazy because they had Jamie Collins, who they didn't retain, and now he's with the Patriots just lighting it up and having an incredible <laughs> yeah, season. Um, somehow of course, the Patriots traded the Patriots
3: him good. to Somehow the Patriots traded a linebacker to you guys and then got, got him – back- Back for next to nothing, and he's and having what? a better season than he ever had with you guys.
4: Mind-boggling. But um, the the front four guys, you know that defensive line of uh, Miles Garrett, Sheldon Richardson, Olivier Vernon, and Emmanuel Ogba. Those are the guys that really anchor that group. And like you said, there's a reason why they're highly ranked in sacks. Miles Garrett is a freaking monster. I mean, that guy. He's the first guy that's going to be up for a new contract, and they better retain him because that, that's he's the exact image. That's one pick that you can you can one hundred percent say for once the Browns did not botch a pick. I mean that was mm-hmm. easy easy money to take him, but he is clearly shown to live up to the hype. He's incredible. He I think at least going into this past week he was on pace to try to break the record, Michael Strahan's record for sacks in the season. He might be wow. off of it now. He was he was putting up some big numbers first half of the season. So um, those guys are really where it starts. But we you also haven't heard a lot of their names. Like I know sometimes those interior defensive guys. You're not going to hear their name called as much. I mean, you guys know that as Bills fans. But, oh, Jordan um, Phillips.
3: We were talking about it today. Our defensive tackle, Jordan Phillips, is currently leading the league in sacks by a defensive tackle. No one knows who he is.
4: Right. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's a perfect example. And that's the thing. Like, You maybe don't hear those guys called as much. When you bring in a guy like Olivier Vernon, Like, you're expecting him to make more plays than he has. And he's had he, the last two weeks, he's been a little bit better. He's gotten a sack in the last two games. But to not hear his name called once the first six, seven weeks of the season was kind of like, all right, you invested in this guy. He was part of the package that you traded a first-round pick for, and you're not really getting the, the returns that you, I think, expected.
3: Would you say the majority of the pressure that your front seven brings, does it come from the edges of the defense, or does it come from the middle? I mean, obviously, Miles well, Garrett, he brings he's, yeah. he's a wrecking crew in and of himself. So whatever side of the field he's on, that's where the pressure's coming from. But in terms of the rest of the front seven, do you think that they do better up the middle or do you think that it's more, you know, off-left tackle, off-guard kind of stuff?
4: It's interesting. I I, I think, like you said, obviously Miles Garrett speaks for himself, but I feel like I do feel like the majority of their pressure sort of comes from the interior outside of him. Like, I know Emmanuel Ogba's often in there clogging things up. Um, I know Sheldon Richardson, again, his name hasn't been called much, but he's at least getting in the backfield and disrupting some stuff. So I feel like outside, whatever side they're putting Miles Garrett on, I feel like that's obviously taken care of. But then up the middle, I think, is where they've generally been able to, to make some plays. Granted, their run defense hasn't really been what you would want it to be with guys like that in the middle. So to me – this has been a defense that can generate some pressure in the past game, but they're not necessarily a great run-stopping defensive front.
3: Well, and that's going to be a problem against a Bills team that's proven that they're willing to just, whether we as fans like it or not, just put their heads down and run under <laughs> run under center with guys like Frank Gore on, They'll beat that play to death. Now, on the offensive side of the ball, you got done telling us all about your feelings about Baker Mayfield and just these different things. I want to talk about the guys in front of him because that's where a lot of this starts for me. I mean, a lot was made on this podcast, this off season over the differing ideologies that went into building the rosters of the New York jets versus how the Buffalo bills went about their business. The jets spent gobs of money and just a lot of assets on skill position players. You know, guys who they thought could come in, they score points, they'll move the football through the air, they'll move the football on the ground, they'll do it, you know, they'll, they'll pace our offense. Meanwhile, the Bills took a lot of their cap and just put it into the defensive and offensive lines. The result of those moves can be debated, but I think it's hard for anyone to argue whose approach yielded better results here in 2019. And I'm reminded of that argument when I look at the Browns roster. I mean, I look at the way you guys went about it. You brought in guys like Odell Beckham, Jarvis Landry. You you have David Njoku, who was a tight end that you spent a first-round draft pick on. You have Nick Chubb, who was a high-round draft pick. You have all this firepower, which obviously gets everybody excited because they're picturing touchdowns. They're picturing the OBJ one-handed grabs in the end zone once every other week. And instead, your offensive line seems to just be... When you look at what the offense is, your offensive line, I think that's where the failure starts. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this now. 26 best offensive line, according to Football Outsiders. Your offensive line has been shuffled multiple times. And your left tackle was benched and then reacted. He was brought back into the mix. <laughs> 21 sacks given up, but just 31 total quarterback hits. Former Buffalo Bill, Wyatt Teller. He wasn't good enough to start on our line, but he's now starting for you guys. And he's replicating a lot of the same things we saw, proving that he hasn't grown from one year to the next. And the fact that he plays well in the rush, but he's poor in pass protection, specifically against more complicated moves. Can we talk about a little bit of what's going on up front for the Cleveland Browns?
4: Yeah, before, hold on. Before I go to that, I was going to say, it's funny you mentioned the OBJ one-handed catch thing because I feel like every week there's, you know, Brown's social media sharing a video of him at practice like making a one-handed catch between his legs and warm up before the game like, oh, one-handed catch in the end zone, and they share it. And I, occasionally I go click on it and scroll through the comments, and it's just a bunch of Browns fans saying, yeah, but why isn't he making those catches during the game? <laughs> Well, You know what, what, that's even a better point.
1: I mean,
3: the the offensive line, we understand they struggle. Your skill positions are stacked, and I don't understand the disconnect here. I mean, you're talking about Nick Chubb. You have the fourth best running back in football. He's third in yards per game. Just overall yards per game. When you factor in what he can do in the passing attack. That's a head of guys named Todd Gurley. <laughs> That's, I mean, we had Matt Waldman, to Chris's point, we had Matt Waldman on this podcast who told us coming in his draft year that if it wasn't for the knee injury, Nick Chubb would be a better running back prospect than Todd Gurley, than Ezekiel Elliott. He's a more complete player. He's capable of more. And you're seeing it. As he got acclimated to football last year, he really caught on. And he saved a lot of people's fantasy football seasons. And this year, he's still been qu- on a two-win team. He's been one of the most effective running backs in football. And then you look around and you see that you have OBJ and Landry. I mean, I, I guess I just I don't understand where the disconnect is with the talent here on this team. And it, turning into points scored on the field.
4: Yeah, I'm glad you brought it, Nick Chubb because... Um, maybe it probably won't be a hot take to like you guys because you like you just pointed out the stats. You threw them all out there. He's he's been great, but I've been saying probably since like week three or four that Nick Chubb to me is the top five running back in the NFL. I mean he's right up there with Saquon and Zeke and Cook and McCaffrey. Now he doesn't catch the ball as well as maybe some of those guys do out of the backfield, but in terms of his effectiveness and just being like a power runner, I mean he, he's right up there with the best. Uh, He's averaging the third most yards per game right now, as you sort of mentioned. And I I know when you look at this Browns roster, like most people are going to point to OBJ and say he's the most talented player on the team. Probably true. From a talent perspective, he probably is the most talented player on the team. But the most important player on this team offensively is Nick Chubb. Because whenever he's had success, the Browns offense has success, which is mind-boggling why Freddie Kitchens maybe doesn't use him as much in certain situations. Like... On Sunday, there was a third down and one um, near the near the Broncos. I think it was the Broncos seven, yeah, third and three from the Broncos seven, and they had Dontrell Hilliard in running the football on third and third and three. Like, I, why? Why would you not let Chubb be in, in that situation? It just doesn't make sense. So to me, he's the most important player on this offense in terms of the disconnect. It, it's it's hard to pinpoint, and I think this has been the struggle for Browns media in general this season, what exactly is wrong? because what exactly is leading to the disconnect? Because on one hand, it's partially Freddie Kitchen's fault. Like I don't think he's drawing up the right plays and the right schemes to make the offense successful in a lot of situations and that goes back to what I said with him not using Nick Chubb in key situations and key plays. Um, but I also think Baker Mayfield just isn't the same as he's been as he was last year where he took the world by storm in his rookie season. It's a combination of things. I mean, I point to there was a Twitter outrage on Sunday because on that fourth down play where Baker threw into triple coverage over the middle of Jarvis Landry, you had Odo Beckham Jr. against Deontay Harris, wide open, man-to-man coverage, beat him by like a yard, and Baker didn't even look his way. So it's some combination of Freddie Kitchens isn't setting him up right in the right situations to be successful, but also just Baker Mayfield – isn't seeing the feel well. And it goes back to maybe your first point where we were talking about the offensive line. I, the offensive line is bad. And, and I, I think Baker knows that. And because of that, he's maybe making decisions a little bit faster than he needs to or wants to, and he's just uncomfortable back there. I, I think that is the biggest thing because there's no way... I, I know that now teams have tape on him, but there's no way that the guy who set the rookie record for touchdown passes in a single season, and he did it in 13 games is like this has regressed this badly in the second year. Like, like there has to be more you. to it than just that.
2: No, you just wait till uh, Sunday when you have a third and three from the seven, and it's not that asshole you were talking about that runs that play. It's Kareem Hunt.
3: Oh, see,
2: Kareem Hunt gets that play this week.
4: I, now, now I'm asking is that is an X factor. I know. I know we're going to talk later about like key, like guys that maybe. Oh no, no, no! I want them. to
3: talk about it right now because here's what I'm reading. <laughs>
4: I'm reading that
3: Kareem Hunt has been called. Now you're just you just got done espousing all of the great things that Nick Chubb does for this offense. Meanwhile, I'm looking at the your wide receivers, right? Your wide receivers, Beckham and Landry, they were the reason for all the excitement. If I'm looking at their stats. This is going to depress everyone out there, if you're, a, if you're a Browns fan. They have a perfect target split, 67 targets per wide receiver. And near identical receptions, 39 and 36. And their yardage, 575 and 555, respectively, with two combined touchdowns. Both wide receivers have a catch percentage of less than 59%. They rank 55th and 64th, respectively, when compared to all wide receivers with more than 30 targets. These two guys, who everyone thought was going, they're going to set the world on fire. They're going to pace the offense with Baker Mayfield, who threw the, set the, you know, broke Peyton Manning's rookie touchdown record. These two wide receivers are going to make it happen, and instead. It's almost been like trying to include them both has actually ruined what he's trying to do. <laughs> it actually made yep. play calling harder because you don't know who to feed. There's reports of OD, you know, OD, OBJ complain I want to call him ODB so bad.
0: <laughs>
3: but there's reports <laughs> of so him bad. bitching on the sideline about not getting the ball enough, not getting the, which any elite receiver is going to do when he doesn't feel yep. like he's being paid enough attention. This is where you need a strong head coach to step in and corral things. And it's not happening. So now I have to ask, you know, you kind of touched on it, I guess, but you know, you, you mentioned this failure of you know, their scheme, their usage. It's resulting in this drag on both wide receivers' production. Now I read a report today. Kareem Hunt is going to have a quote-unquote significant role on Sunday. That that came straight out of your coach's mouth. Yeah, I have to question who is he taking snaps from. You've already taken things <laughs> away from the wide receivers. You already don't utilize your best running back to his full potential. Who is he going to cannibalize to get these touches?
4: Yeah, the phrase that comes to mind for me is that that you know the embarrassment of riches phrase, and you use that to describe you know. Like the Golden State Warriors the last few years, they had an embarrassment of riches. All these players that were all combined. And people worried about the same thing with them. Like who was going to get the ball? Who was going to take the big shot? Yada, yada, yada. They did it successfully. And basketball is a little bit different. But in football, like the Browns have so much talent that to your point, you how, how can you get every single one of them the ball a, a solid amount of times? And it is interesting, like you read off the numbers, how Landry and OBJ have almost identical reception numbers, but what's the most alarming is their touchdowns because like and that's been a complaint for Browns fans all season. The Browns in the red zone are just god awful. They've scored touchdowns on 46% of their trips into the red zone. Only 6 teams have a worse red zone scoring percentage. And last year, the Browns were the fourth best red zone percentage team. So maybe all this all these all these this talent that they've accumulated really is hurting them because Again, we're just not seeing the results, and the fact that they don't target Odell Beckham Jr. Again, who we've all agreed is probably the most talented player on the team in the red zone. Just makes no sense. Like, like throw it up to him, give him a chance on third and six or something to make a play, and Baker doesn't even look at him half the time. It's just mind boggling. And to your, to, to get back to sort of the back on track with the the main point of this specific po- uh, conversation with Kareem Hunt, I honestly don't know what a significant role entails for. I have no idea. I am interested to see how they use him because Freddie Kitchens hasn't really done a good job managing all the talent (laughs) so far. Um, So I guess maybe on that third and three from the Denver seven, maybe that would have been a situation where Kareem Hunt was in. And then you're like, all right, it's Kareem Hunt, so I guess it's okay. But I I, I have no idea. But to me, taking the ball out of Nick Chubb's hands for Kareem Hunt would be doing yourself a disservice because I just sat here and told you he's the most important player on the offense. Like they're going to give Kareem Hunt the ball, the guy who was suspended, is coming off an injury, um, gets into off the field issues. Like this is the guy that you want to put 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 the in the hands in the ball, up, the ball in the hands of. Like I just I don't know. I, I have no idea what 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 they have in store for Kareem Hunt, but I, I don't know where he fits in an offense that's already oversaturated with talent. And they can't spread the ball enough.
3: Well, and that's, I guess, I look at the point-scoring problems for the Browns, and it's one of the things that make makes me feel good as a Bills fan. I mean, you guys have four games with 13 or fewer points, and you're 0-4 in that span. I mean, you're the only team in the NFL without two touchdown passes in a single game. That's, that's a problem, especially with all the weapons you have, which speaks to a disconnect between the play calling and... And between the quarterback and the talent on the team. Now, we've just got done dragging your team down into the mud. But I have to ask, in the interest of, because I'm not stupid, I understand that Sunday is going to be a fist fight. And here's the reason why. We've played two teams this season who were desperate for different reasons. One, we played the Eagles. The Eagles were a desperate football team because they had Super Bowl return aspirations at the start of the season. They were talked about as a legitimate contender to go to the NFC Championship game. And then they had a terrible start. And then we caught them coming off of probably one of the most embarrassing losses that the Eagles franchise has had in a couple years. So when they came into Buffalo, they came in with a giant chip on their shoulder. They had something to prove. The same can be said for the Miami Dolphins. Their head coach, you know, obviously their, the whole tanking thing came into question. And they started Ryan Fitzpatrick on purpose because they said, look, we aren't tanking. We're not trying to be bad. We're just trying to figure out who we are as a team with the limited amount of talent that we have. I still believe that they tanked intentionally in terms of where they stacked that roster with talent. But those players don't know how to quit because they put their bodies on the line every single Sunday. To, to play this game. They don't quit for anybody. So with that said, we're, we're now going up against a third straight team, much maligned, who their head coach is under fire as, hey, when not not if, but when is he going to be fired? Their quarterback is under fire in terms of, hey, maybe he got drafted in the wrong spot. Arguably two of the most talented wide receivers in the entire league are on their squad, and yet their talent is now being called into question because of the start that they've had this season. I've seen this movie before. I've seen it where a team finally says enough is enough. We're going to have a statement game, and it comes at the Bills' expense. (laughs) <laughs> where is it that this Browns team poses a credible threat on both either side of the ball to the Buffalo Bills on Sunday?
1: I
4: think, I mean, I think the obvious, the obvious starting point is just running the football. That, that's the one area where I think Cleveland can have some success, and I sort of mentioned it a little bit earlier, but they, they're giving up the third most um, – or, sorry, they statistically um, – are one of the best rushing teams in the NFL. You have a guy like Nick Chubb, who obviously has had his fair share of successes. He put up 131 yards against the Patriots, which is, again, one of the most daunted defenses in the NFL right now. Um, granted, they've put up two duds the last couple weeks defensively anyway, I think, especially with the Ravens doing what they did to them on Monday night. but um, And you have a Bills defense that – they're, they're, again, the Bills' defense is stingy as they come. They're, they're a great unit. But the one area where they've maybe struggled a little bit recently is their their run defense. I know like the Eagles obviously had some big numbers against them, 218 yards. Um, they're averaging, I think, 111 yards per game. They're not quite as bad as the Browns' run defense has been, but they're sort of middle of the pack of the NFL versus their passing defense, which is top five. Mm-hmm. So to me... And, again, this is where is Freddie Kitchens going to look at the information in front of him and realize, like, all right, let's use our running backs. Let's use Nick Chubb. I don't know, but that's where it starts. And it starts there also just because the Browns' offense tends to be better and play better and be more efficient when they're running the football successfully with Nick Chubb. So, to me, I think they have to go into this game and realize that if they're going to have any success offensively, they're going to have to run the football on that Bills defense because they're so good against the pass. Maybe that opens some things up for you. Maybe that takes some pressure off of Baker Mayfield, and then you can make some plays that way as well. But um, I think it starts there. Defensively, I think they just have to honestly play better. Um, the nice thing is the Bills aren't the most you know air-happy pass attack that you're going to play this year. Um, so on the back end of things, that won't be as big of a deal. And Their pass defense hasn't been terrible, but they have to figure out a way to tackle because they have been awful. And the Bills are coming off a game where they just, I mean, bulldoze the Redskins into oblivion with the rushing <laughs> attack. And they're starting to the, the Bills are really realizing. I know there was, I know he was hurt for a little bit, but Devin Singletary, I mean, they're finally starting to get him more touches, which is what he deserved from the beginning because he's a he's a monster. I'm that not gonna lie to you. Really
3: when it comes to Devin Singletary, it's not so much being able to tackle him as it is just being able to put hands on him at all. You see those runs that he had this past week. When you get into a phone booth with him, he's like a bar of soap. You you feel like you have him right up until he's running away from you.
4: And yeah, you... and then you got him with paired with 65-year-old Frank Gore who just never stops being good. I don't, I don't get it, but yeah. I mean, those two together, the, the Bills have a really good rushing attack. It's, it's obvious to see, based on the, who they have on the roster right now and the success they've had running the ball, why they moved on from LaShawn McCourt.
3: <laughs> What's your prediction for Sunday? How do you see this whole thing laying out?
4: Um, you know, I, I, I find it interesting that the Browns actually are favored in this game. Did you, I don't know, did you find that interesting at all too? No, you know
3: what, we were asked this by another Bill's, uh, excuse me, a Browns show that asked us to kind of do a podcast sort of thing with them earlier. It wasn't a true podcast, but it was close, and it was interesting because one of the questions that they lobbied to us was, were you guys insulted by being viewed as underdogs? I feel I felt like an underdog when we were favored by seventeen points. And I was I was rewarded for my skepticism. So with that said, I never take offense to the fact that people doubt the Bills because you should. We've we've done nothing yeah. over three years that says this team should that's be fair. trusted to win any game on any given Sunday.
4: Yeah, that that's fair. I, you guys I guess it's par for the course for Bills fans, obviously. You guys, are, you guys are used to flying under the radar. And it feels better when you fly under the radar and then you go win. So Yes. Um, granted, against a 2-6 and six Browns team, that's really not that impressive. Just saying. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, no, so uh, for me, like, I've picked – so I do a show um, locally just like an hour long on this one station. And I – we always pick do picks against the spread and we always save the Browns for last. I've picked the Browns to cover the spread. The last, like, I don't know, four weeks in a row or something like that, and every single time they burn me. So, and that's picking them just to cover the spread. That's not even picking them to win. So, I can't possibly pick the Browns to win this game when they're 0 3 at home. That's another factor. I was like, Vegas isn't even considering the fact that they've been awful at home. Um, And you have a Bills team coming in that has proven, despite the skepticism maybe on the outside looking in, they are a legitimate team. They are a legitimate playoff contender. Their defense is great. Josh Allen, love him or hate him, he's making some plays. He's maybe not the best quarterback in the NFL. He's no Aaron Rodgers, but he makes plays when he has to. He has that fourth-quarter comeback stat that everyone throws out there on social media. So, I mean, this is a team, again, that was built by Sean McDermott with a vision, and that vision has sort of come to fruition this year. So, for me, a team that has a vision, that's on the right track, that's 6-2 and two on the season now, Versus a Browns team that has no vision, has players going on social media sending out threats, that's a distraction. <laughs> guys like Odell Beckham Jr. and Jarvis Landry wearing un, or illegal cleats during a game because they'd rather show off their brand than, than be out on the field playing and try to get a w. Well, I think To me, a, like, oh, this spells such... Bill's win. 100% this spells Bill's win. I hope I'm not giving you guys the kiss of death here, but this should be a Bill's win.
3: I'll tell you this. This is... That's one of the things, I guess, I I look at, and I I pray that we never had this issue. Players who b- genuinely just believe that they're bigger than the team. Bigger than the sport. Yeah. I mean, it's just... Your personal brand, that's one thing that Sean McDermott... You know, it was one of the questions that we fielded from the podcast that we recorded for earlier tonight. They... Sean McDermott's whole thing is there is no brand. There's no personal things. There's there's nothing personal about this. You are one of 11. You're just a guy who's here helping a bunch of other guys accomplish something. Hopefully on Sunday, all of our guys, our 53 goes out there and accomplishes something big in Cleveland. And hopefully we do it with minimal disasters. Although considering the fact that it is the Browns and the Bills, you know that can't be avoided. It's yeah, going to be a says shit says show. Yeah, history says these
4: games are ugly, for sure. I, I remember, show. I think back to that 2013 game where, uh, what was it, Brian Hoyer and Jeff Toole ended up being the starting quarterbacks by the end. and they Brandon were
3: Brandon Whedon.
4: Brandon Whedon, yeah, my was, friend. Well, they, the final score was like 37-24 or something. Like They somehow put up these huge numbers. I was like, oh, my God, what are we watching? I threw
3: a party at my very first bachelor pad apartment. I threw a party. I had nine people crammed into a 650-foot space. And when both quarterbacks went down with an injury, I picked up the cookie cake that my friend Allie baked and brought for the party, and I took it into my bedroom with like a six-pack of beer out of my fridge, and I closed the door, and I didn't come out for an hour. I sat there in the dark by myself, eating a cookie cake and drinking a six pack. Was
4: that your response to them losing, or just because you had to watch what you? Just because to watch I had too? to
3: watch Jeff Toole play Brandon Whedon, and it <laughs> dawned on me that this is my life.
4: Oh my God,
3: Spencer! That's we real. really appreciate you taking some time out of your busy night to join us. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find your work, where they can find you on the radio, where they can find you on social media?
4: Yeah, so uh you can find me on social media at spensito underscore. It's a nickname from high school. That's why it is what it is. I know I, I didn't I didn't I didn't do the whole uh everyone always like, oh you gotta like make it professional and blah blah blah. No, no. no. I'm not about that. Come on. <laughs> I, I guess I I would I not fit with the Bills because I'm about my personal brand here, too. Um anyway. Uh, you can read some of my work over at neosportsinsiders.com. I, I generally do a lot of stuff game day and throughout the week there for the Bill or for the Browns, excuse me. Um, and then I'm on the radio occasionally on 92 through the Fan here in Cleveland, which is our intercom affiliate. And then also I do some work with uh, 88.7 WJCU, not a sports station, but that's one of my other part-time jobs that I do. It's linked to the college I went to, John Carroll University. So that's where you can find me if you're ever in Cleveland.
2: All right, guys, again, you can go follow Spencer German on Twitter at Spencito underscore, S-P-E-N-C-I-T-O underscore.
3: Well, Chris, he's got his ideas of what it's going to take to win this football game for each individual team. But, as always, I have our keys to victory.
1: Wow, that's a lot
2: of keys. Bigger the keychain, more powerful the man.
3: This might be one of my most insightful ever, Chris. You need to rattle Baker Mayfield with pressure and what's known as the creeper blitz.
2: Do you mean creeper blitz, like b- based on that photo that's been going around?
3: Which one? The one of him
2: post game from last Sunday,
3: <laughs> with the mustache and the 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 the, the, p- the petticoat that Kevin McAllister's dad had on in Home Alone.
2: Oh yeah, he <laughs> Baker Mayfield in his post game presser from Sunday. He looks like he's the third member of the Wet Bandits. <laughs>
3: No, Chris. And I know that there's people out there right now who are asking themselves, what the fuck is Drew talking about? Creeper blitz. No, it's not the moose head. And no, I'm not just making shit up over here to try to make myself sound smarter. Come on. Hey, guys, we're we're well over an hour into this nonsense. You already know that I'm not that smart. Baker Mayfield has put a lot of negative tape out there. But one of the things that I believe, based on my research and just a consumption of NFL dissection and analysis is that teams and smart defensive coordinators have figured out a chink in the armor of Baker Mayfield, who, coming out of 2018, was one of the NFL's best passers against the blitz. Now, a creeper blitz is a fancy term for simulated pressure. Essentially, you put defenders in in spots to blitz, such as a linebacker over the center in the A-gap, or you bring an extra safety down into the box off the shoulder of a tackle, forcing the offense to have to account for you when it comes to, okay, when the snap comes, I'm going to fire off the ball and I have to be able to account for all these pass rushers. And then instead dropping those players, either, either the player who drops down or a defensive lineman who's already in place back into coverage. What this does, it sets off alarms in the minds of quarterbacks because they genuinely believe that pressure is coming. And then they look to find, okay, where's my second read? Where's my hot read? Where can I get the ball out to? But then after the snap, they find out there's no one open to get it because the blitz never actually came. And now your options in the intermediate area in the flats aren't truly open. And the wasted time that a quarterback spends processing all of this results in broken plays and rush throws down the field that create negative plays. Mayfield this season has proven wildly susceptible to this change. It's a copycat league. In each of their biggest losses of the year, you see defenses running these creeper blitzes on second and third down. Tennessee, San Francisco, even the Jets used it really, really well which is why, come the third quarter, the jet, the Browns only had 16 points, despite the fact that Kyle Falk was their starting quarterback after Trevin, Trevor Simeon went down on his very first drive. I mean, they were on their third-string quarterback with a bad head coach and a bad offense, and yet one of the most suspect secondaries in the NFL held the Browns to 16 points. Using this blitz concept, it's essentially just faking and daring you to throw into coverage like that. Given the quality of our secondary, Chris, and the athleticism of our linebackers, I have no doubt that we have an ability to execute this creeper blitz to perfection. And so with that, if we do that well, I think it's going to go a long way towards stopping the Browns offense. Bang! That is a key to victory, sir. Second of all, not a shocker, stop Nick Chubb. Okay? You've got a running back who is top in the top four or five in terms of, I mean, I'm not. I'm just looking at rushing yards. I'm not talking about receiving, which he also does very well. If you were looking at all-purpose yards, Nick Chubb might be one of the most dynamic threats in the entire NFL. He's definitely up there in my mind with the Saquon Barkleys and the Ezekiel Elliott's and Kamara's of the world. Is yeah. he not, Chris?
2: Yeah, and for any longtime listener of our show that remembers our draft show with Matt Waldman, Matt Waldman had said if it was not for his knee injury... Nick Chubb is a better back than Zeke coming out of college, a better back than Gurley out of college, and he has shown how good he can be despite that horrific knee injury that he had in college. We have to stop Nick Chubb on Sunday.
3: You have to find a way to stop him without committing all of your resources to it because it's going to take linebackers in space in order to stop these wide receivers. Don't get me wrong. I mean, without David Njoku, this this offense has changed. But you're going to need all hands on deck because OBJ, Landry, those guys have talent. If you sleep on them, they will kill you. Stopping Nick Chubb with probably five guys is what it's going to take in order to win this game. And then, my final key, Chris, drink and pray. I don't recommend anybody watch this game sober. Like I said, I assume... I'm just picturing the Enola Gay, the, the the back door is just going to open, and the bombs are just going to start fun This game is going to have at least two different plays that end up on SportsCenter's not top ten because it's a Bills-Browns game, and the only way to survive a game like that is to drink. You got a prediction there, fatty. <laughs> <laughs> my prediction, my prediction is that my liver is going to take a beating on Sunday. My prediction is that I'm going to yell at you at least no fewer than three times over things that aren't even your fault. At some point, I'm going to be shirtless outside. And I feel like this is a game that, because they're playing a desperate football team. And the Bills have not fared well against desperate. I mean, you're talking about a team that wants to show out to prove that, A, their quarterback isn't a flop the way the the national media is painting them. That their head coach isn't the failure that everyone thinks he is. That guys like Landry and OBJ aren't just here for the money. I feel like we're walking headfirst into a shitstorm. And it's for that reason that I think I can't make a prediction. I'll say this is a field goal game either way.
2: Jesus. Lamo over here. I mean, we just read it off earlier in the show: eight nothing, six three, twenty 29-27 on a fifty six yard field goal from the Browns. We're, that that is exactly how this shit is gonna end on Sunday. It's gonna be some shit show, and I'm going with the Brownsiest of Browns, Billsiest of Bills scores. Bills win this game, fifteen to eleven.
3: Fifteen to eleven. I don't even know how you get to eleven in pro football, but if that's how it ends, Chris, I'll take it, guys. Thank you so much for stopping by again. In in two weeks, we'll be back out there at New Era Field. Chris, where can the people find us?
2: Uh, when we tailgate, it's uh, you know fifty three thirty, Big Tree Road. You know we've been getting people to come out from Canada, from LA. Uh, from Mike, Portugal, Swence, from yeah, from Mike Swenson. from Swentz, yeah, Mike Swenson, Mike Swenson from Australia is going to be at that Denver
3: game. From oh yeah, the Denver game. Mike Swenson from Australia is coming in. Folks, come on out to the tailgate. It's a great time. We cook to feed an army. We bring enough booze to drown a small horse. If you have a small horse, you can bring the horse too. <laughs> With that said, guys, we got to get the hell out of here. Thank you so much for showing up tonight. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. And this has been the Rock Pal Report.